everyone, welcome to Making It, our weekly podcast on building a great business right here in Egypt, brought to you by Enterprise. This season is sponsored by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. When Chris Khalifa first thought of Zuba 10 years ago, leaving a stable job in Cairo's leading investment bank to sell street food in an upscale neighborhood for five times the going price would have struck anyone as crazy. But you have to remember, the landscape of dining in Egypt was different. Egypt is different. We had a spin on every international cuisine, and we had traditional Egyptian classics. But safe for putting mango in kunefa, nobody had attempted building a brand that added flair to the conventional. Chris was definitely daring. He has not only convinced Egyptians that Tamea sandwich can cost 10 pounds, but for many, Zuba has become the benchmark for good Tamea, and Hawashi too, if we're being honest. Today, his Egyptian street food brand operates seven branches across Cairo, a franchise agreement in the GCC, and an outpost attempting to take on New York, one tub of kosheri at a time. So what does it take to thrive in an industry that, at the best of times, comes with slim margins and high operational costs? Chris takes us back to the launch of the first branch in 2012, the first fusion of his love of food and entrepreneurship. He recruits an executive chef and sets out to quash the notion that Egyptian street food means compromised quality and hygiene. Through the unique challenges presented by competing with the family breakfast to teaching Westerners how to pronounce Tamea, Chris claims he is not in the restaurant business, but rather in the business of culture and hospitality. We discuss how going beyond the food was key to Zuba's success, how they fought off shock currency devaluation, and how they're facing the impact of COVID-19, all while presenting Falafel's lesser-known cousin, Tameya, to the rest of the world. Here's Chris, speaking with Hashem, our executive editor and co-host of Making It. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we begin, Chris, I want you to settle something internally here for us. Chef Ramsey or Anthony Bourdain? Oh, God. Um, Anthony Bourdain for me. You've been a fan of his show, right? Like, I love his show. Yeah, a huge fan of everything about him. I'm a big fan of the, the cultural aspects of uh, Bourdain's approach, yeah. What if, in terms of personality and, like, leadership style, who are you more like, you would say? Calm, collected, introspective person like Bourdain or a, you know, kick it up to 11 kind of guy like Ramsey? Um, I wish you were asking my team that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it and everyone's <laughs> going to hear this and think I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I would say I'm usually a more calm, collected type of approach, I think. You sound like it in this podcast so far. Well, I've prepared myself for this podcast, so this is my very calm, <laughs> Nice. All right. Tell us about Zuba. Where did the idea come from? How did you guys come up with it? So the idea came nine years ago now, 10 actually, when we started thinking of the idea. Um, my background was that I was a banker and um, always had a passion for doing something entrepreneurial and started to get a as through my first few years in banking became very passionate about brands and the power of brands and the power that, you know, the idea of creating moats around a business through building a strong uh, brand and started to become very interested in the food business and the retail business in general. Why pick food as, uh, as the way to go? 
I think a combination of the fact that I felt like there was a real opportunity there to do something special that hadn't been done in Egypt, um, plus the fact that I do have a passion for it. So we, I slowly noticed that we have this very deep culture of Egyptian food and specifically Egyptian street food. Um, it's delicious. It already existed. It's existed forever. But no one's tried to really develop or push a brand around it and actually push the envelope of how it's being prepared, um, the ingredients used, et cetera, et cetera. Just build, again, a brand and present that in Egypt and to the world. Um, and I always found it very strange that for a country with so much history and so much culture that our culinary, we had no culinary presence in the world. And that was the premise for starting Zuba. Well, you guys are doing something right. Your Ta'amiya won first place at the London Falafel Festival in 2016. And so a very belated congratulations on that. Thank you. So what is it now in the world globally, Ta'amiya or Falafel? For us, it's Ta'amiya. Every customer that walks into Zuba asks for a Ta'amiya. So I, I'm sure on a, on a global scale, that's still a very, very minute percentage since falafel has definitely been the more popular item. But um, no, we make it a point. Uh, we have posters that say not falafel in the middle of Zuba in New York. And um, people understand the difference and associate the fact that Taumea is Egyptian and we communicate that. It's great to see people walk into the counter and ask for a Taumea sandwich, you know. So did Egypt definitively win the culture wars over Taumea? Ooh, I don't know about that. That's a really big statement. Um, I think in the, in, the, <laughs> in our size of Zuba, in uh, our 180 square meters, we're very happy with how it's working out so far. All right. Tell us about your, the launch of your first store in Zamalek. Where'd you get the funding? How'd you guys like, get the ball rolling on getting your first store launched? I was working at EFG as a banker, and I had spent more than a year. Actually, we started, um, I want to say, mid to late 2010, working on the brand itself and was looking for the right location. And obviously, the right location for a first uh, retail or restaurant location is critical. Spent a year and a half looking for the space. And I remember in September 2011, uh, finding the space. And I knew that was the space that we wanted to start with. I resigned end of that year from my job, and we ended up opening that location the next March. Um, the funding for that was friends and family. I had savings that I put into it. I borrowed from family member. My mother is one of my earliest partner and one of my best friends who uh, both put in a um, portion of it. And that's how it started. We had started working on the concept before 2010. And then obviously everything came to a halt for a while. And so did we. And then we started again, I'd say mid 2011. All right, man. I'm sorry. We're going to have to put you to trial right now. You have to answer for a 10 pound Tamiya. All right. When you were coming up, with this, no one really had the audacity to kind of like turn street food into something a little bit more premium. How many people told you you were crazy when you said this? And what made you stick to your guns? Most. Um, I think that generally ideas that end up working by definition, most people, when you're working on them, will think that it's a crazy idea or else it would have already been done. I think a part of that's cultural as well. I think that that might have changed a bit in the last 10 years. But Generally, we're not a culture that is very, very comfortable with the idea of entrepreneurship. We're a culture that values uh, the doctor, the lawyer, the, these types of professions. Um, so entrepreneurship as a concept is a scary uh, thing. Yeah, our, our generation especially was kind of raised around being the professional. 100%. So I think there was a discomfort in that idea from people around me of why leave a stable job and go try this. Um, and also from a concept standpoint, there was definitely the answer of, no one's ever going to pay more than, at the time, I think it was a pound fifty for a, for a full sandwich. 
it was almost like full and were subsidized foods in Egypt. I mean, they're the closest thing to Baladi bread in terms of having very clear price points. So definitely there was that no one will ever do that. Um, but what was funny is that as many as I got comments like that, as I got as many comments after it opened and it worked of people saying they've had this idea forever and have been wanting to do it. So, I mean, you get, you know, after the fact, you get the other side of the of uh, So the it kind of needed someone to break that initial barrier of, you know, of worry about the idea. It's, I mean, we didn't invent anything. It's not, it's, we're not the first people to try to elevate a local cuisine and use better ingredients and create a brand. I mean, this has been happening with cuisines all over the world. I mean, you know, there's a, there's Mission Star restaurants on food trucks doing fantastic things, you know? So, so it, for me, it didn't feel so far-fetched. It felt like I was, I was just Egyptianizing it. I mean, that's what I was saying, because like that concept seems like more you would find it in New York. I think the whole craziness element of it is that you're willing to sell it to Egyptians in Egypt first. You know what I'm saying? Right. A hundred percent. And I think that's harder because um, we're also serving food that every every Egyptian uh, is convinced their mother makes better at home. Um, it's very hard to compete with that. So definitely that was a challenge. How did you determine the price point where these very uh, local dishes uh, would be set at? We went from the raw materials upwards. So we we started by creating the best dishes we could finding the best ingredients to do them, um, doing them at the size that we thought was most relevant. And the si- size is a major thing when it comes to these sandwiches, which we discovered with time. The average full and tame sandwich uh, that was at the time 150 is a very small sandwich, right? We were serving as well more substantial sandwiches. And then we it was a cost plus type of uh, analysis. Um, I mean, it, it was hard to have reference pricing because there was no one else doing this at the time. So you kind of had right. to have a there was a bit of an, a gauge of where you thought the limit was of what people would actually spend. Um, but also the, the cost of our sandwiches was more expensive than the price of them in the streets in Egypt at the time um, and probably till today. Um, so th- there was obviously that could not have been the reference either. Um, so we were really creating a new price category, if you want to call it that, or a new, uh, a new segment. Um, and we just wanted to be rational. So what justifies that new price category? Like, why shouldn't I just skimp out on the nine pounds and go to the streetcar? I think the values that people are attributing to the decision to eat at this place or that place are different. Um, so I think that, people, for example, hygiene and ingredient quality is not something you care about, which is completely fair enough. And street vendors are selling significantly more than we are. Um, Zuba is not a proposition for you, right? So it's not and if those are very important factors, you probably weren't eating in the street carts to begin with. So we probably acquired customers from, uh, at the time, Casper and Gambini and TBS, uh, more so than we did from Ged and Shabrawi. And when we actually had a first uh, share stomach analysis that uh, El Menus uh, did uh, for us uh, maybe eight years ago, um, people that were thinking about Zuba for their meal were not thinking of it vis-a-vis Ged. They were thinking of it vis-a-vis other, like literally Casper and Gambini, TBS and other uh, you know, more casual dining international cuisines, um, which is interesting. I think that, again, a lot of our clientele that we started to acquire was just not ordering this type of food for lunch, not that we were a new place for them to order the same food. How would you describe your target consumer? It's, it's very mixed, and we're discovering that with time. When I started, I thought it was going to be a more affluent consumer um, just because of the reality of the fact that we were more expensive than how, again, these items are served in the street. Um, what I didn't realize at the time and started to become apparent is that there still weren't many five-pound sandwiches in the country. Um, so we were still cheaper than McDonald's. There were people that were looking at food and saying, wow, this is a great meal that I can have. And the whole thing is 20 pounds, for example. 
I don't, there's been so much inflation since that it's, it's, I almost forget right. what the average ticket was at the time, but that really became the, the positioning. Again, we are cheaper than McDonald's or cheaper than KFC, for example. Um, and that's, these are huge markets. So then the consumer itself became very mixed. We started seeing a very different consumer that orders us delivery at home and on Friday mornings, for example, for the family lunch and a very different consumer that comes to Zuba in the evenings as they're outing and a very different consumer that orders us at the office on a daily basis. So yeah, we're actually till this day trying to figure out exactly what our consumer mix is because it's quite varied. And it's diversifying the more places you launch, Akid. 100%. What's your highest selling dish in Egypt, in New York, everywhere? By quantity of items, I would say tamaya. In Egypt, koshari, uh, hawaushi, and ful are close seconds. And in New York, our top selling item is uh, cheese hawaushi. Oh, okay. So score one for the hawaushi. Let's talk about the business itself. Um, without taking COVID into account, the restaurant business is brutal. You got the high costs of both labor and uh, the facilities, the venue. Um, you have stiff competition. Supplies is hectic. Rent. You have to deal with all of these problems. The grand opening is usually here, at least in Egypt, is followed by the grand closing. You know, what, are, what have been your biggest challenges out of all of the stuff that I just mentioned? Um, no, I think, I mean, every, everything you mentioned is, uh, is quite spot on, right? So the restaurant industry is notorious for being the textbook example in business school of an industry you don't go into. It's uh, very low barriers to entry, huge competition, very low margins, and very high risk, like you said, of, uh, of closures. And you're saying in Egypt, I mean, it's, it's even worse in, uh, in more developed uh, economies. In New York, it's uh, frightening. Um, what we were very cognizant of in the beginning and the major difference when you in this restaurant space is the distinction between a restaurant and a brand. And I think that as much as it is a very, very difficult business, if you are just a restaurant serving food, I think that the, moat, the moats in this business are created around creating a very strong brand and having that speak for more than the food. But wouldn't you say that that then makes your job as a restaurant tour tougher because you kind of have to almost guarantee every single meal to be of the same high standard in a very, very, very tough industry? I think you have to do that, whether it's a restaurant or a brand. I think that's, that's just a prerequisite. That's the product side of, of what you do. It's like selling shoes. You have to make sure every shoe is perfect. That's a bit tougher when you're making each one of them to order. But I mean, I think that's, again, a prerequisite. The food has to be great. Um, for me, it's more a creating an emotional brand where people are attached to you for more than just the food. Um, and I think that's what's difficult in the restaurant business. And I think when you think of large chains today that are successful, that have existed for decades, the McDonald's of the world, and of course, there's so many others, they're about much more than the food. And you don't think of McDonald's as selling a burger. You think of McDonald's as selling something specific to McDonald's. And you go to McDonald's because the brand itself speaks to you in a certain way. And you have this emotional relationship with it that transcends the fact that it's just a burger. I think that's the challenge in this business. So define the Zuba experience for us, the Zuba brand. Again, Zuba is about more than food, right? So Zuba started, and I think the reason why we got such a great response at the beginning is that Zuba was a bit of a point of pride for people, or at least the people that, that loved Zuba. For lots of people, they might not have, they might not have. But for enough people, people saw a representation of something Egyptian that they thought was, that they believed in, that they were proud to say, was um was egyptian and that they were excited to bring other people and show them and say oh, this is an egyptian experience have you been measuring how many of your customers are repeat customers that come in again and again 
we're funnily enough starting to the last few months we've been uh, getting a lot more uh, tech infrastructure and um yes we have been measuring a lot of how many times people come back to us uh, how what the percentages of return are and that in an industry where it's actually quite i mean restaurants in general the percentage of returns after your first experience is 25% which is a very low number um we've got thankfully better numbers than that and I think we also have vocal followers, right? So that's small percentage that represents the majority of our business. Um, so the 80-20 rule, you know, the 20% that represent most of our business are also, I think, huge ambassadors of us as a brand. And I think that's major for us. And that comes back to this idea of continuing to work on a brand and not a restaurant. You said uh, how I think of my job as a restaurateur. And you, you mentioned the word restaurateur. I've never considered myself a restaurateur. For me, it was always about I'm building this business. I consider myself an entrepreneur. And I think the distinction is that idea of are you building a company, a brand, a culture, or are you running a restaurant? Not that one's better than the other. It's just two different complete mindsets um, of how you approach this, I think. I mean, again, let me reiterate. I think that fantastic food experience and food quality is a prerequisite, right? But I think once you pass that, and if you consider that a prerequisite to the fact that you're in the food business, um, continuing to create an emotional connection with your customers is very difficult. And I think that that's been... So your food has to stand for something. The food has to stand for something. And then you have to go beyond that, I believe, to build an actual company that has, like you said, the ability to continue to be relevant um, with time and keep growing as well, not just be relevant. Right. So the food is only as good as its ingredients. Is it a challenge for you guys to source good food at affordable prices? Yes, it's not easy for sure. There's always this, this not, not struggle, but this challenge of continuing to make sure you're using the best quality possibly, best possible quality ingredients. And a big part of that sourcing as well. We're, we're obsessive about our sourcing. We, you know, we go to every, any producer of anything we do, we have inspections, we go see them all. But definitely not, it's a challenge. And um, it's a bit more of a challenge in Egypt than in New York. I found it to be a much easier uh, experience in New York because- really? What's the difference? The more farm to table and local sourcing concept and local produce is a lot more established, right? There's already an entire industry that is using this type of ingredients. So the pricing of the items is already incorporating that. So you're not starting from scratch to say, we're going to be double the price of a normal sandwich in New York. It's a lot more straightforward that we can get distributed to us a lot more easily. In Egypt, if we find these things, in lots of cases, we have to deal with the distribution. Um, and that becomes an entire new business. It's a very difficult to do when you're also trying to run a restaurant. I, I know a lot of people in Egypt are working on that. And I think that will continue to change. But it's just a few years ahead in New York, for sure. Do you guys rely on a central kitchen? We do not. We make everything in-house. A lot of restaurants do, especially nowadays with the delivery. No. We actually did it five years ago or six years ago and closed it and changed the business model. We condensed the menu so that everything that we make, we can make in-store. For our older Zuba fans, you'll remember we had a much bigger menu uh, seven years ago. Um, we made it a point that we only produce things that we can make same day on site, fresh from raw materials uh, in each store. Um, and that's the business model. All right. Is it hard to find good, talented workers for your restaurants? In general, I think definitely because this is a high, because uh, we employ a lot of people, it's definitely something that's a daily it's, I mean, we sometimes think that we are an HR company uh, uh, before we're a food company, um, but that's just the reality of the number of people you have to employ in this business. Um, that said, when I first started, there was uh, a lot of the comments I get from people is that it's such a difficult workforce and you're going to have a nightmare of a time with the workforce and the workforce doesn't, you know, it's not as productive, et cetera. Um, 
we've had a fantastic experience uh, with employing people and with building the culture in Zuba. We started with a team of 25 people that started the first branch with us in 2012. I want to say 12 to 15 of them are still with us today, and they are our restaurant managers, our head chefs, our area managers, and our sous chefs that are running the entire business. We have a promotion from within only um, policy that I think has helped tremendously with building culture and building just the loyalty with our team. Um, we have the entire team on a KPI system where a percentage of the net profits on a monthly basis per branch are paid directly to the team managing the branches. It's our way of creating a bit more of a mom and pop type of a culture to the branches themselves. I think that's been instrumental to, again, adding to the culture of the business. Um, we're transparent with our PL for every branch with the team. Everyone knows our numbers. Um, again, branding and then culture would be the two things aside from the operations that are, I think, the cornerstones of building our business or any business. And we took very early steps to invest very heavily in it. And we went through an entire values process that we developed Zuba's values with our entire team at the time was 170 people all sat through sessions of what our values, what our values mean, how do we come up with our own values as a business. And I think for us, it's just a function of you treat people with respect, they treat you back with respect. And we've had a fantastic experience. Have you managed to translate that culture that quality, those standards over when you expanded into New York? Or how easy did you find it? We're working on it. And I think so to uh, early, right? So this is uh, in Egypt, this is eight years in that you can say that you feel it year at a time with little things, but with time, you keep feeling it more and more. And I think a big part of it is building trust with your team that they also trust that you're not just telling them things that you're not going to live by. Um, we're a lot younger in New York, but I think that that we are building the same thing. It's a smaller uh, operation at this point in time. It was quickly interrupted by a, a, a pandemic. <laughs> so, But I think little things like how we dealt with the pandemic, how transparent we were with the team, I like to think that these are the types of things that with time um, continue to build that kind of culture. And yeah, we're as optimistic about it for New York as we were in Egypt. Um, we think it's at the heart of what we do. All right, I think now's a good time for a quick break to thank our friends who helped make the show possible. Making Data is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. So you mentioned like earlier that, you know, abroad we have Michelin star uh, restaurants and very famous chefs. Why haven't we been seeing any successful homegrown international brands coming out of Egypt? When you say international brands, you mean Egyptian brands going abroad? Egyptian brands going global, yeah. So I think as a country, we were until maybe 10, 15 years ago, a country that was built on importing and franchising inwards and not trying to build unique brands to export out. Right. So I think right. that's already started to change domestically. And I think there's some fantastic local brands in fashion, in food, in I mean in tech all over the place um, that are starting to be built here that share a lot of the same uh, principles, values, and ideas that I'm sharing on this uh, in this conversation. Um, and I think we have seen some of them start to get out of the country. I mean, as a, as a simple example, pioneering this way before any of us, Azza Fahmi would be a fantastic example, right? Um I think on a younger version, we see it with Ukhtin today. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot, but we are seeing today brands that are getting this type of um, recognition outside. Same way Zuba in New York was, has uh, 
has been. And I think that the more younger entrepreneurs keep seeing that that's possible and that that's, you know, that other people can do it and that it's doable with something Egyptian and that you can have an Egyptian concept next to, you know, these huge mammoth, uh, you know, London and New York based concepts that you keep reading about in all these uh, publications, then suddenly becomes more attainable. And I think we'll see more of it. All right. I want us to focus Kedeshwe about the expansion. You guys kicked off in 2012. And in the span of what, just a few years, you guys grew to seven restaurants in Egypt and you have the one restaurant in New York now. When did you feel you were ready to expand abroad? Um, from day one, the concept, the vision behind this was a Zuba in every major city in the world, right? I mean, aspirational as that sounds, but the, the premise was that we wanted to introduce Egyptian street food through Zuba to the world. So in the back of our minds from the beginning, infrastructuring it, um, our investor base uh, being aligned on the vision, the spending on institutionalizing the business, bringing in certain calibers of management, et cetera, from a very early uh, date was all based on the idea that this is going to go outside of Egypt at some point in some way. I think at the very beginning, we might have rushed the expansion a bit. Um, so I think after Zemelik was started and we got this unprecedented press and response, and it was you know, it was just surreal. We had CNN features, et cetera. We never spent $1 on PR. Um, and I think it kind of got us very excited to move forward quickly. And we might have done it before we really understood what our actual unique proposition was, you know, who we were as a brand and who we were as a, as a food concept. Um, and we ended up opening our second, third, fourth and fifth um, within the next two years. So by 2015, we had five. Um, and now we're 2020 and we have seven, just to put in perspective. Um, one of those closed down and I think was a big real estate mistake and a big mistake on lots of fronts of us understanding who we were. Um, and then we slowed things down dramatically. And we started to think around 2016, mainly triggered by the devaluation that okay, the, if we're going to start the infrastructure to leave, let's start working on that now and let's figure out what the next steps are for that. So what was your marketing strategy? How did you, at some point you had to market this brand? Our first dollar spent on PR was for the opening of New York. Um, before the opening of New York, we never spent a single dollar on PR. We never really spent on any performance marketing. It was all for us about having a fantastic- so It was all word of mouth? Pretty much. Store experience. Don't don't underestimate the power of the storefront as well as a brand, as a branding tool. We've seen from experience that the stores that are in the most visible areas, their curve of growth is much faster. Um, but that plus word of mouth, plus we were just very lucky with people. We had something unique enough that people wanted to talk about. So we were very lucky with getting organic press. And I think that's that's a when you I think when you take a risk and then it works out, that's one of the upsides is that you suddenly then have something unique to actually talk about. Why New York? Because I know there were plans to kind of look at Saudi Arabia. We read that you had plans like to open maybe 20 chains in the GCC over seven years or something. So why New York? Why not focus regionally? So Saudi is still happening. Um, we are in a mm -hmm. partnership with a company in Saudi that it's hopefully will be opening our first branch by the end of this year. It got delayed because of the COVID. Saudi is a partnership. It's a franchise agreement. So it's not something that we're doing ourselves. Oh, wow, Mabruk, so you're franchising now. Yeah, we, we had we actually signed that before New York. So that, that agreement was put in place um, middle of 2018. Um, New York, we did ourselves. So New York was a strategic decision of, on a wholly owned basis. Where do we take this business next, right? We looked at the usual suspects a bit. Um, for us, as a prerequisite, we wanted a place that, that where the primary language was English, right? No reason to add a layer of trying to open somewhere where we don't even speak the language. So that took care of a lot of Europe for us in the decision. And we looked at Dubai, um, but reached the conclusion quickly that on a 10, 15 year growth plan, it was a small market. 
Um, so you, you could finish the market in a few years and then you'd be looking at moving to the next city, which didn't make much sense. And we were looking for a place that could become the hub of the company's growth for the next 10 to 15 years, um, which kind of left us with London and New York. We, we knew we were coming in with things that were in lots of ways unique and that no one had tried before. And we knew that we were coming in with it in an aggressive way where we weren't trying to sugar it. We weren't watering it down, right? So we were coming in, calling it Tamea, calling it Haoshi, wanting people to come in and pronounce those words. Um, <laughs> was How tough was that? It, it's been great, honestly. It, it's been fantastic. I think that might be one of the most enjoyable things to watch in feeling like something is going right. How many people told you you were crazy to think of New York? Every single person. How do you stick to your guns? What do you tell people that constantly will think that you're just out of your mind? Um, to be fair, opening a restaurant in New York is crazy. I mean, it is definitely not your... Exactly. Uh, yeah, so by any measure, I, uh, I understand people telling me it's crazy. Um, I'm convinced that we have something special with Zuba. And I think to have a conviction that are sitting potentially on uh, a proposition that could be unique in a place as diverse as New York um, was exciting for me. After that, we did the homework. I mean, we obsessively did the homework. We, I knew by the time I was starting to raise money for New York, I knew the New York restaurant market and the margins and the labor and the, the reality of the leases and the neighborhoods and supply chain and the branding agencies, everything like the back of my hand. That said, we had a very, very, very difficult time raising money. Um, it was not exactly what you're saying about people thinking New York was crazy. No one in Egypt and no one in the region actually was interested. We ended up raising the money in the States. I started in Egypt and I think combination of people being unfamiliar with New York and then people not giving us the credit of having any experience to do New York, which is fair enough. We, we had never done New York, um, made people worry about doing it. I think if I was trying to so raise the same amount of pitch to investors, we had a, again, a brand story pitch with potential strong economics in a city that could transform the business. Um, and we needed to find investors that were that believed in the story and believed in the uniqueness of the story and were willing to take the risk. Thankfully, we were able to find, but uh, it was definitely not an easy process. How much did you end up raising? At the time, we raised $4 million. Uh, are you guys looking at another further round of funding? Well, is that tough now with the COVID situation? We're always looking. Thankfully, we're in a good position today. But yeah, I mean, it, in the next period, we'll definitely be uh, looking at our next... Uh, funding round for our next phase of growth. So purely in terms of brick and mortar setting up of the business, where did you think it was easier in Egypt or in New York? I think it was easier if I compare it to Zamalek, it was definitely easier in New York because I had done it so many really? times. I, I had done it so many times by then. Okay. Keep in mind when I did Zamalek, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I, uh, I had been a banker for seven years. I thought that this was a potentially great concept. Um, but the reality is I had no clue. I mean, it's a, <laughs> we kind of, we started to learn it quickly as we went along and thankfully, thankfully we had done something new where people liked it and they were going to give us second chances. But on our first day and second day, probably first week in Zemetic, we were serving full in 45 minutes. You know, the, the building process is the same. Um, by the time we had gone to New York, we knew all the partners we needed to get. We had gotten the best potential partners for design, for uh, kitchen design, for HVAC design, for contracting, for, I mean, every part of the process, we didn't try to take shortcuts. Um, we definitely made sure we were doing it cleanly all out. The mission was a great Zuba. But like you said earlier, this was still your first time in New York, you know? So Akid, you had to face some a whole scope of new challenges and issues that were just not present in Egypt. A hundred percent, but we had the, we had, 
put together the resources and the human resources to help us through it. And we're clever enough by then to know who to hire to help. We had hired a VP of U.S. operations with seasoned 20 years of experience in the in the U.S. that was with us. Our head chef for New York um, had had been working in the U.S. for the last, I want to say, eight, nine years. I mean, Egyptian guy, but uh, U.S. experience. We just had, it was a different team set up. Um, we learned how to get a project off the ground, if that makes sense. And it right. kind of applies to any city. And you get the right experts in that city to help you with the city-specific issues. Um, so what were these specific issues? I'm not sure if I call them problems. I think that the process, the construction process in New York is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly detailed um, with a lot, a lot, a lot of steps of certifications that have to happen in the in the process and a sequence that has to happen in a certain way for approvals for you to open. Um, and I think that a part of it was very comforting to have it. Huh, so the, bureau, the bureaucracy of starting a restaurant in New York is tougher? It's not tougher because it's clear, but it's incredibly thorough. I think in Egypt, it's tougher because you don't know exactly what it is. <laughs> okay. So, it, but it's, but it's, it's cumbersome, if that makes sense. It's, it's a lot, you know? Um, and I think that was right. a lot to, to figure out. Um, also, it's just so much more expensive, right? So just coming to terms with the fact that every time you turn around, there's, you know, every, everything you're paying is, is a dollar-based check. It took a few months to come to terms with the actual money leaving the bank every month, to be honest. How would you measure the success of the New York restaurant? Um, we had this overwhelming support from so many people, of people sharing about Zuba's opening, people posting it on their Instagram accounts, people that we never met, people that I don't know if they're customers or not. It almost felt like there, there was an Egypt event happening in New York. It wasn't just a Zuba event. And I think that, that pride was quite incredible. And we saw it in our opening week. One of the things that, that shows that you're successful, you were kind of listed at, in one of New York's 100 best restaurant list. Have you specifically managed to carve out a niche in this international environment? For Egypt, for Egyptian food? I think that the the best decision we made was to never water down the concept of this being Egyptian. I think the safe approach of opening a restaurant like ours was to go and try to take a direction of this being Mediterranean food, right? So the, the Mediterranean label is very familiar. We went with a full-fledged, this is Egyptian. We serve Bissara, not hummus, and here's the difference. We serve Tameya, not Falafel, and here's the difference. Uh, we serve Hawaushi, and let me tell you what a Hawaushi is. You know, we serve beef liver, even though we know that lots of people find beef liver to be a disgusting item, but that's because we know that other people find it to be fantastic. It's actually my second favorite item in Zuba. Um, I think we took an incredibly, again, potentially riskier, but bold approach to how we're entering the market. And I think today we're being rewarded for it. And I think that being on... That Bon Appetit top 100 New York City restaurant list is one of the most surreal things that's ever happened to us. It's, it's quite amazing. Let's get to COVID. Um, how would you compare the impact of COVID-19 in your stores in Egypt versus New York? Um, it's been more dramatic in New York. Um, so COVID, I mean, it, it definitely was a, we've been talking this whole time about the high of opening in New York and this whole process. And, uh, you know, the, it's amazing that, 12 months ago from me having this conversation now, I was designing Zuba New York. You know? So in 12 months, we've designed the branch, opened it, had this fantastic run, and then COVID and closed. Funnily enough, we closed New York City exactly 10 days after that uh, Bon Appetit Top 100, uh, top 100 list uh, came out. So to put in perspective how quickly things can change. I think the impact on Manhattan has been more dramatic 
of COVID across the board than on most cities. I think the nature of the demographics in Manhattan make it a lot more visible um, or a lot more tangible, if you want to call it that. Um, Manhattan, just real quick, daytime population in Manhattan is about 4 million people, right? Only 1.4 million of them actually live in Manhattan. So 1.6 million commute every day for work and another million or so are tourists. Um, so already you're talking about that larger percentage of your population uh, not coming in anymore. And then out of the 1.4 million, a large percentage left, uh, left the city when COVID happened. So it is possible that the population of Manhattan is down 70, 80% um, for this COVID period. Um, that's a very unique reality to Manhattan. How does that compare to Egypt? I don't think something that dramatic happened in Egypt. I think people in Egypt stayed home and, you know, there's obviously there's an impact of the fact that restaurants themselves are closed and it'll take a bit of time for people to psychologically come back to being comfortable dining inside restaurants. Um, and definitely we're aware of that, but I think that people are still in Egypt and to a great extent, people are still in Cairo. Um, we definitely saw a bit of a impact of no longer having tourists, um, but no, no, nothing to compare to the impact of New York. And how's that lack of walk-ins uh, hit you guys? Um, have you guys had to lay off? Have you guys had to uh, reduce your working hours? Tell us about kind of specifics of what COVID did to your business. Well, we closed for a month and a half. We reopened uh, again May 8th. So we closed, I think, March 16th to May 8th. And no, it's had, of course, a dramatic impact. Restaffed accordingly. And most of our team came back, which is fantastic. And we are continuing to basically we're continuing to work through it i mean there's nothing much else you can do would you say delivery has managed to pick up the pace and kind of compensate for that or are we are you still seeing lower number of sales uh because of covid no definitely not compensate no for sure we're definitely seeing lower sales obviously this has had an impact on your expansion plans how far down the road before you think you can even begin to think let's expand let's say covid delayed us about I don't want to speak too soon, but we're thinking it delayed a lot of our plans about 12 months. But I think Which is it's not bad. Yeah. I mean, it's a, the reality of our industry and most industries in this situation is um, in a lot of industries during COVID is that you're going to, if you can weather it and if you can come out of it, um, you're probably going to be in a very positive environment to grow for the following five, seven years. How have you guys been keeping your heads uh, above water? Have you been reducing prices for customers? Have you been marketing yourselves more? Um, what have you guys been doing to kind of just keep business moving forward? We've been a bit more aggressive on our marketing, definitely. Um, we've been taking, we took advantage of a lot of the, a lot of the time where we were closed as a management team to work on things that we potentially never had the time to really get around. A lot to do with our, our tech architecture and our infrastructure in general. Uh, reassessing a lot of our partnerships. I mean, just kind of making sure that we're coming out of this with a much leaner and ready for ready for growth structure. All right. What's next for Zuba? We're in the phase now, Zuba, where the next phase is growth. Um, we've been working on building the foundation for this business for eight years, and we've been working on it for this point now, or we've proven it in Egypt. We've proven it in a place like New York. We think that from there, we can prove it in other cities. Um, so and where we, you are right now is the jump off point. That's where we see it. This is the, for us, this is the pre-growth phase, yes. Can you tell us about a day? I mean, obviously you guys had to go through so much from starting, from the idea, opening abroad, then COVID. Is, was there a day when all of these headaches were just getting to you and you just didn't want to get out of bed at all? I'd say two of them. Um, maybe there are days or a few days. Our opening 
our opening week in New York was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, we had a very new team at the time. They had not worked at any of, they had never run, worked in Azuba before. Um, we had a much larger showing than we had imagined. Um, so we had lines out the door from the start and it was incredibly difficult to keep up. And I was terrified because our entire, everything we'd worked on for seven years was, um, you know, it was resting on people coming in and having a good experience. And that first week and two weeks and month of word of mouth and, you know, that buzz is essential. Um, and it was definitely difficult three days in, I think I would have rather just, you know, lay in bed for 24 hours and recover than go again. And I was in the branch at six o'clock in the morning mixing hawaoshi because one of the chefs wouldn't show up and then standing on the cashier all day me and my whole team you know the all of us uh we're all doing different parts in the business for probably a month if not more and i think that part was very stressful to quickly just getting things off the ground so that the customer experience is great regardless of what's happening behind the scenes and then getting the behind the scenes to actually catch up um was incredibly incredibly difficult so those were the two days or, or was no, there that, was, that was the first experience. And then COVID definitely Oof. when it started was it took a while to come to terms with it. I mean, it, we were on such a high and the momentum was so fantastic. And we were, you know, we had just done what we kind of started this business to do. And it was and we were getting these fantastic reviews. And I, I'm convinced now that'll happen again and we'll come back from that. But definitely going from that to closing um, suddenly and then finding yourself uh, going from growth mindset of a business to the cash preservation and survival, survival mindset. Mode. Yeah. yeah. Um, all in such a short period of time. Um, definitely uh, took a bit of time to, I'm still trying to get over it now, but I'm, I'm in a slightly better place today. But that, that was So what did you do to get out of bed? You had that day, the world was just crashing down on you. You just didn't want to get out. What would you tell yourself, get yourself out of bed? you're the one, the momentum and the energy is going to come out top down, right? And you have to quickly figure out where the light is in the business and where you're taking it and then make sure that you are translating that energy in the rest of the team. And there's no option of, of checking out. You you check out, the business checks out. So I think it's not our first crisis. Um, we've gone through lots of dramatic things before. Um, the devaluation was a very dramatic time. We as a company had a very difficult 2015 that was very dramatic, trying to raise money to go to New York and that phase was difficult. So we, we've seen these before, but still, I think you, you just so have crisis to, management gets better every crisis, right? One crisis at a time. You get a bit more used to it. It becomes more, it's a bit more normal. Um, so on our last note, what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur trying to make it in the tough world of restaurants and food and beverage? Make sure you're passionate about entrepreneurship. <laughs> My major passion with this is that I have a I have a love for the idea of building this, and I think that's what keeps me going. It inspires me. It's not about necessarily the food. Um, I could have been doing anything. I just happened to really get attached to this idea, and then it becomes it's become my entire existence. But what excites me every day is waking up and wanting to build something. And I think if that's not what excites you, if what excites you is the product or cooking or you know the fact that you think you make a fantastic uh, tomato soup. There's different avenues for that. It's not necessarily to open a business. There you have it. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this week's episode, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Making It is produced by Enterprise. 
your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. This season is brought to you by CIB and USAID.